This is the New Limestone Review podcast. New Limestone Review is a literary journal from the University of Kentucky's MFA Creative Writing Program. Here, we interview writers and talk about reading, writing, and more. Shayla Lawson is the author of three books of poetry, A Speed Education in Human Being, the chapbook Pantone, and I Think I'm Ready to See Frank Ocean, and the forthcoming essay collection, This is Major. Her work as has appeared in print and online at Tin House, ESPN, and Paper Magazine. A McDowell and Yaddo Artists Colony Fellow, Shayla currently serves as writer-in-residence and chair of creative writing at Amherst College. She curates the Tenderness Project with Ross Gay and is a member of the Afrolatian Poets. Welcome, Shayla. Hi. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> so I wanted to start off talking a little bit about what it means to be an Afrolatian writer. And here at UK, we're honored to have professors who are also acclimated Afrolatian writers mm-hmm. like Frank X. Walker and Crystal Wilkinson. These writers interact with nature, space, and community. Though I'm sure you you can share in their experience, I still imagine that being of a younger generation, a millennial, adds a new or additional dynamic to the experience of being an Afrolatian writer. So to you, what does it mean to be both an Afrolatian poet and a black millennial woman? I think one of the things that's really nice about being an Afrolatian poet and a millennial is that I moved here when I was about six years old. And pretty soon after that, um, I spent the first, <laughs> say, probably the first eight years of my life in and out of the Carnegie Center. And at the time, Crystal Wilkinson was actually working there. And there used to be a, a cafe in uh, the vicinity of downtown that my mom used to love to go to that Nikki Finney would always be in. And as transplants to Kentucky, um, my parents are from the West Coast. I was born in Rochester, Minnesota. And one of my family's biggest concerns was representations of blackness that they'd seen coming out of Kentucky. And the idea that um, that black people here weren't looked at as being smart or, or talented or dignified and definitely not as artists. And so what that meant for me is that my first version of what an Afrolatian woman was, um, was people like Crystal mm-hmm. Wilkinson um, and Kelly Norman Ellis. And um, their, I forget their, her last name, but their friend Joan, who's a, the, the filmmaker who made the first Afrolatian Poets um, documentary. Like these were the women that I saw and I was like, okay, this is what I am and this is what I want to be because my education, um, you know, really just as a human and in addition to just, you know, what my career was like going to school here um, was was very complicated. It's a very racist environment. Mm -hmm. And comparatively, when you have West Coast parents, um, it's a huge difference because, you know, we live in a country in which racism has all its different skews. And wherever you go, um, and, you know, really, if we just look at blackness across the diaspora, we're all dealing with different versions of what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
it felt like there was such a calculated effort in this community to hide the presence of black people. And that's one of the things that the Afro-Latians were looking at in the definition mm-hmm. of Appalachia and the fact that it excluded the possibility that black people even existed here, right. that the, the word was defined in a way that only white people existed here. And so I think the way that it carries for me now as a person is that it's always what I am so I don't have to think about it because I always exist. And the presence of the right. fact that I came out of of these hills um, is innate. And I think a big part of what is millennial identity is the idea of no longer feeling that you have to represent your culture in a very specific way. I feel, you know, I'm at the very beginning of the millennial era. (laughs) And so I feel like the strata has been watching all of you grow wider and wider in your interpretation of what you can possibly be as a black person. And I really liked watching that crescendo start to form because I feel like I was at the very crux of it. And the, um, the Afrolachians, that I was introduced to, um, I think about the story that Mitchell Douglas often tells about how they used to, when they went to UK, like when Frank and mm-hmm. Crystal and Kelly and Mitchell all went to UK, and when they were, and Randall, and you know, and right. when they were, um, when they were Nikki students, they used to meet in the elevator. There wasn't really? even, yeah, 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 there wasn't even a Black Cultural Center yet, you know, and then Ricardo came with, in, and ended up being the. Um, the manager, the lead, you know, of the Black Cultural Center, you know, they created the possibility for us to be Black and, mm-hmm. and artist and strange on this campus. And I was in another iteration of that strangeness. And then I look at poets um, like Keith and Joy. Um, so Keith Wilson, who is, is here with me this week doing a reading. Um, and goodness, so, yeah, when I think about um, how much stranger Keith Wilson and Joy Priest are in comparison to uh, Bianca Spriggs and I, who grew up here at the same time. And then, you know, tangentially, the other thing that the Afrolagian poets did was introduce um, people like myself to um, to black millennial writers that were working, you know, across the, uh, who, uh, you know, across the, across the, <laughs> I, uh, I want to say across, I guess across across the country at this point, yeah. Because uh, I was thinking about, um, I met Natasha Marin the year that she was inducted. Amanda Johnston, um, I think, is just a little shy of the millennial definition, but definitely uh, gives me a lot of millennial energy when I think about the, she's really great on social media and, you know, has really captured the ability to pull that into her work as a poet. Um, and that was another, like, ripple in this idea of how big my identity could be. Um, and so I think that's one of the wonderful things about being um, still associated with that title is with each ring of, you know, whether you want to think of it as a wave or as a tree, as mm-hmm. we grow, uh, we keep building more space for that identity and the ways that um the ways that we can look at southernness, the ways that we can look at, you know, what we can continue to be as we progress into the future. Well, thank you. So, um, I think it's very evident um, that, like, I guess the the first time a number of people initially heard of Frank Ocean was from Nostalgia Ultra in 2011. But for me, it was actually a year later when I first heard his verse on Oldie. Mm-hmm. 
about future. And I'm thinking of that line, bumping old D's off my cellular phone. <laughs> um, it seems as if Ty, um, artists like Tyler, the Creator, and Frank Ocean have expanded the realm of how black male artists can present themselves and what kind of music they can make. Even recently um, at the awards, uh, the Grammys, Tyler, I think, made a speech about his music and um not wanting to get like best like rap album yeah, yeah and that sort of thing so it's interesting how that even you know ties into their i guess identity and how they experience music i think i would say the same thing of frank ocean as well um but uh it seems like they have expanded the realm so i was wondering what do you think has allowed or caused frank ocean and his music to be so embraced by black culture and popular culture i think a lot of it is the time period i think we were introduced to frank ocean's music at a time where we were ready to accept it mm-hmm. and at a time where it was easier for him to be vulnerable. Um, the idea of him being able to come out in the liner notes of his music as right. someone who, who is part of a, a hip-hop culture that has a terrible reputation for being incredibly misogynistic mm-hmm. and, and deeply homophobic um, shows that we've started to break into kind of the, the realm of accepting sad boys um, right. and also understanding that there's a necessity and that vulnerability in order for us to 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 make great art because in order to make great art it can't all be self-destructive um, so much of what came before him in terms of uh, the culture was very much predicated and dedicated right. and on that whether we're looking at R&B or if we're looking at, at hip hop um, there was an expectation that Black people were impervious to pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Frank Ocean introducing to his fan base, um, first subversively through the songs that he wrote for, for more famous people, uh, the songs that he wrote for Jay-Z and Brandy and uh, for Beyonce, um, mm-hmm. he started to kind of leak those things into the culture before um, we were actually responsible for listening to his voice and his music attached to it. I think what's neat about um, Nostalgia Ultras, the the loci for where most people uh, start to experience Frank Ocean is the idea that they're all covers of existing songs. And Mm -hmm. so that's another way for him to start integrating his relationship to a more sensitive narrative atop an existing narrative of, you know, that we've already accepted. I think that's part of what made it so successful is we have a strong tie to uh, the sounds of songs like Strawberry Swing or Hotel California. Um, and then when we hear this new story or even um, uh, the, oh, the management song that turned into Nature Feels, um, when we see him lace this story, which, you know, obviously for... Uh, for the way that I look at the way that I look at writing, I think it's really important to claim. You know, when we see him lacing a black story on top of it, and a story that actually involves um, us being loved and being loving and being open. Um, it, it, the way that he handled the structure of his releases, I think, was very strategic, um, and we can 
we start to give him credit for that on an intellectual level when we look at the fact that he continued to do that in the way that he released Berland in a way where he had bought back all his masters before he was the age of 30. Um, we just see a, a broad spectrum of how he has opened the field. It's not just in the realm of the way that we're looking at music, but it's also the ways that black people are looking at their own autonomy and especially their autonomy as artists. Um, because he looked at the number of times and the ways that black artists um, were taken advantage of by the music industry. And he um, writes a lot of notes about Prince and the yeah. experience that Prince had. You know, Prince couldn't play all of Purple Rain at his concerts because he couldn't exactly. afford it. Um, right. And to come out of that history and then say, hey, I've figured out another way around this um, because I've learned from something, it, it's really a testimony to... Um, it's really a testimony to black culture and how broadly we're able to see ourselves even when a lot of people can't. Absolutely. So getting to your collection, I think I'm ready to see Frank Ocean. Um, one of my uh, favorite kind of reoccurring, I guess, things that happens in this book is what you do with colors mm. so blue and pink um also even the reoccurring phrase the ocean or talking mm -hmm. about frank or an actual ocean and you know what that means in the waves and ripples and everything uh, i was wondering if you could talk more about your use of these colors and these phrases and maybe even your per personal connection to those yeah i come from a design background. Um, so before I released Frank Ocean, I had a, a book of poems entitled Pantone in which I, I specifically did studies of colors and um, the way that the color spectrum works and also um, looking at the Pantone ordering system and the possibility of taking a very subjective experience, which is seeing color or experiencing color, and how do you translate that into something that's more universal, uh, the Pantone ordering system being entirely number-based. Um, so I was really, um, I'm always thinking about color as an aspect of writing. In this book in particular, we get a lot of pink and blue uh, because of the millennial conversation that surrounds both gender identity and sexuality mm -hmm. and the ways that we are working with those colors on a spectrum and what it means to continually merge and blend and find cohesion within that spectrum. So uh, when I think about the song Pink Matter, for instance, Frank Ocean actually makes very specific delineated references to these colors in relation to um, to his love interests and to himself. Right. Um, and he talks about, um, you know, trying to, he, he uses it as a way to try and navigate his own sexuality and mm -hmm. also the ways that he feels certain relationships to his femininity that he's not supposed to feel in a world that looks as, that looks at, um, at masculinity as a representation of a misogynistic patriarchy. Um, and I wanted to use the book to continue to extend the conversation that he started in that song with Andre 3000 about the ways that we can start to um, blur and blend those colors in different spaces. 
And then, of course, the ocean. I mean, that was like, you know, I love, I love a pond. And so just the idea that there's just so many ways that you can figure out how to put water references in a book about Frank Ocean. <laughs> I also just think it's a nice nod to the fact that this book is not designed to in any way encounter Frank Ocean in terms of autobiography or in right. terms of his personal life. I like the I, I wouldn't have chosen Frank Ocean as a subject if Frank Ocean was his real name. Um, the mm-hmm. fact that Frank Ocean chose that name and then right. legally had it changed. Exactly. And uh, it, it gives this level of a separation of persona and his understanding of persona. Uh, I like that he talks about naming himself Frank Ocean. Um, I've seen in a few articles after Ocean's 13. Um, I'm also a fan of the way that that movie kind of smirks at the idea of what you can get away with. And I think that's a big part of what Frank Ocean does in his career. And I think it's an important reference metaphorically to the fact that he's a Katrina survivor. Um, In the song um, Ocean's that he does with Jay-Z, um, he makes this reference, you know, elephant tusk on the bore of a saving lady uh, docked on the Ivory Coast. And he talks about how this water um, killed his family. This water is my blood. This water, you know, this water tells my story. This water knows it all. Um, and so I think that that's also laced in his use of the name, although I've never seen it written. I see it sometimes show up in his music in ways where I feel like it's a way of him definitively marking this transition that happened in his life, because we have an entire catalog of Frank Ocean's music that was lost uh, to the studio that he had in New Orleans when he had to flee Katrina. He lived in the Superdome. Um, He is, you know, he's a Southerner. He's a Louisiana native. He is, um, you know, very much of, if not from, you know, if not from the area in terms of just where the mountains, you know, begin and end, like very much of an Afrolatian consciousness of the ways that displacement um, really ruptures uh, your ability to, 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 to feel located and to feel like the ground that you live on is actually your land. Um, and so I liked that that name was a metaphor and that made me explore the idea of what can be done with this narrative that surrounds that name as a metaphor for Black cultural millennial identity, um, and not necessarily focusing in on the idea that Frank Ocean is this person, but right. the idea that the concept of Frank Ocean, the, that you know, the person who used to be, you know, the person formerly known as Christopher Lonnie Bro, mm-hmm. created, um, how that is a particular, a very particular thing. So. It really is. The next question is about the poem Nights. Mm-hmm. And um, I love how you write and intertwine experiences of black girlhood with Frank Ocean's lyrics on black boyhood. Um, an audio and literary experience that, when combined, provides us readers with a third and additional way of reading the poems, which is really kind of a lot of what you're doing throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, the lines, some days, the only way being a black girl feels magic that isn't real, is that it isn't real, obviously resonated with me on a spiritual level. <laughs> well, but <laughs> it really did. But I was even more interested in the lines near the end of the poem that read, we watch them right off in the sun set, retreat back to the night of day. Um, 
And I began to think to myself, um, what happens at night and what happens to black girls at night? And mm-hmm. for us, it's very much a rhetorical question. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also thought of the literal darkness of night because it's difficult to see at night and retreat, retreating into the night of day, a time during which it should be easy to see and to be seen. What if being a black girl means being invisible to others or at least occasionally having your existence ignored? Um, can you talk more about these lines about um, retreating back to the night of day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, being a black girl does mean you're invisible. You know, as much as we try to claim space for the idea, uh, you know, one of the things that hurts me the most when it comes to millennial black girls is when I hear them say, I feel seen. I understand why it's caught on for us as jargon. But it is so heartbreaking mm-hmm. to think that that's our metric for feeling cared right. for wow. and noticed is to, you know, to say, I feel seen. And I use it too, but I, you know, yeah, but I, but you know, about yeah, <laughs> when I think about that and that, uh, that poem is actually really special to me. I'll tell it's a, it's a little bit of a longer story, but I'll tell you like how it got written. Um, I was at McDowell with um, my friend Shayla Seabree. We collaborate on poems together because her names are both Shayla. Um, <laughs> And she had a crush on someone and this new, and you know, we're adults. So this stuff, we shouldn't even be like thinking this way anymore. But like she, she had a crush on another member of the artist colony. And this is, you know, like a big residency full of like, you know, crazy fancy people. And we finally, you know, we finally made it. Like we're finally seen in the sense mm-hmm. of us being artists in this way. And there was a new girl who showed up and she had spent, you know, the past couple of weeks having these really like beautiful, intimate conversations with this person and getting to know him and all this kind of stuff. And she sees this new girl show up. Not only does she show up, she happens, she didn't know this, but she happens to be riding Shayla's bike. <laughs> we, were, we each had like little individual bikes, you know, and, and so she showed up, she's riding Shayla's bike. She gets stuck in a ditch and the person that Shayla has a crush on is actually helping her out of it. And what was funny is that it sent us both back into this childhood torture that we have of what it's always been like for us to love people. That, you know, the minute that we think that we get a bit close, um, there is always the threat that because we're so invisible as black women that we might not be read as something that you want to make as important as, as, you know, the the idea that we always end up being best supporting actress in somebody else's meet cute, that they meet on Shayla, you know, they meet on Shayla's bike as opposed to, um, you know, Shayla being the one who, who gets to have that story. And what was really interesting, you know, because we're, we're poets and so we already like, (laughs) so (laughs) we're already full of, full of emotions. So, you know, take, we emotionally like took it out of the context of just like what we saw, but then explored like the visceral reaction we had to that and how much it felt like a ref, you know a repetition of our childhoods and our adulthoods mm-hmm. even you know here we are at, at the peak of our careers at this point and we end up in the library and we checked out the movie theater and we just sat and held hands in the dark and cried wow yeah <laughs> cuz we you know like we needed like we needed that moment we right. needed to to 
to give our little girl selves yeah. that moment that they never had to say, you know what, this has never been fair. Exactly. You know, the fact that you can't be the star of this, you know, this romantic right. story. And, e- and even if it was just a feeling, it was the fact that we both saw that same moment and had the exact same recollection mm-hmm. of how many times that happened to wow. us. And so then I started, I had been re- actually reflecting on it for a while as a black woman who took on Frank Ocean as a subject how many of his songs were about me and I started doing you know a deep dive I spent a I I have to always give a shout out to uh to genius because I use genius you know lyric search and reddit so much to to um to look at the crowdsourcing on mm-hmm. how these different songs were composed and people pulling in all this different information mm-hmm. that they knew from Frank Ocean's biography. And um, I like this story, so I like to go with it. Um, but I don't know whether or not it's true. And be- because of like what is my experience as a black woman, I don't necessarily believe that it's true. But there was a thread that I found that talked about the the idea that the person or one of the people that was a love interest of Frank Ocean's that he stayed with um, while he, around the time that he was uh, stuck in the Superdome and homeless, um, was a black girl. And um, Nights is supposed to be a song that when we, the way that it's structured is it's got this major transition in it. So it goes from being like really happy and up to kind of really contemplative. Um, and whether or not the, the love interest is female or whether or not that person is black, um, I liked the idea of the structure of nights and the possibility of that story to explore the, you know, the work that black women often have to do to write themselves into specifically anything that's a romantic feeling. Mm. So when I talk about that idea of um, the night of day, um, I look at nights from two perspectives. Um, so the first night that I'm playing with in the beginning of the song where I talk about nights like this turn bees into honeysuckle, um, what I was trying to do in terms of our girlhoods is reclaim the idea of being out at night in the summer and it's hot and it's sticky um, and it's kind of your fl- first flirtation with any feeling that's sexual. And what often happens for us is that's our first, uh, that's the first instance in which we're taking advantage of. You know, that's the first instance in which we're hurt. And instead of telling that story, because I feel the world and the media, well, at least, you know, when we look at movies, like that's the story that we get, you know, and we're told we need to stay indoors Mm -hmm. during that kind of night because otherwise we're not good girls as opposed to the world should protect us. So I wanted to write these girls at the beginning who got to, you know, stand out on the port, you know, hot girl summer in their booty shorts and they're looking at all of the boys and they're coming up with nicknames for them and they're flirting Mm -hmm. around with the idea of like who they like best and who they're going to pick and, you know, who they're going to take home to make out with on their couch and who they're writing, you know, love letters to, because I wanted to let us have that, you know, without the danger and without the violence. And so then when I flip the story, you know, we see the bike show up in the middle where, you know, some, somebody with, you know, long hair and light skin shows up Mm -hmm. and that's who Lonnie in the story chooses over um, the girl that, you know, the girl me who has a crush on him, or at least, you know, structurally I identify with that character, even though like this story is very much coupled together through a lot of experiences that are not one. Um, And Lonnie, you know, being Frank Ocean's childhood nickname, I Mm -hmm. thought was kind of fitting in here because also, you know, it was like that, that metaphoric 
relationship that I had to like the intimacy that I've developed with this music, but then also wondering like, can I find a girl like me in it? Um, and I know like, obviously like monks definitely, like, you know, African girl speaks an English act. Like there are definitely characters who it's really easy to tell that there are black women in Frank Ocean's narrative. We, but, mm-hmm. um, I'm, but just the idea of we know that conceptually like this is an ongoing issue when it comes to representation in black culture is how often there's a privilege around um, even even if we're talking about black women, there's such a privilege around long hair and light skin um, and having a very specific body type. And if you don't represent those things, we grew up with so many images in which you don't get to be. The, you know, the, like how how often, you know, when when did we first start seeing the idea that um, a dark skinned woman could be the central love interest? It's been pretty new. So when I switch and I talk about the night of day, um, it's sinking back into that invisibility, but also that invisibility providing a retreat. Because I think what often happens for black women is that we start to think of that invisibility as a superpower. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that I am particularly fond of, but it's something that I think is really important to investigate. So the character kind of reclaims the idea that this is a place where she can continue to perpetuate her own feelings of you know, of love and strength and resistance because she can go back and she can, you know, listen to the music that feels full of of love for her and she can, you know, continue to write her love notes, but it becomes a very it becomes a very single story. It's no longer a story that's invested in the hope of this love interest mm-hmm. um being reciprocal. And um yeah, I I yeah, that's a really important poem to me because I have not seen very many um, poems that start to look at you know those those aspects yeah. of the of the you know of the feminine experience of right. being a black person because I don't think it's solely a, uh, like a girlhood experience it's a feminine experience you know right. like yeah. anybody who inhabits femininity and blackness deals with this question of am I ever going to be loved yeah um, and I just wanted to to figure out a way to to put that out there um, so I wrote that poem. Yeah. So speaking about this poem, Nights, I'm really curious about the way that you end the poem. So after this, you know, retreating back to the night of day, it reads, blinds closed, heads covered, headphones, a full stack of burned CDs. Here, we're able to view like a private space within the experience of black womanhood or black girlhood, uh, where reflection and activities related to leisure can take place. In a black literature course I took last semester, we called this the interstitial space. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a space that has to exist outside of reality Mm -hmm. for black women and like reading Harriet Jacobs and Julia C. Collins, um, in their time, it literally had to be, you know, hidden for very obvious reasons. But um, in the poem Nights, it appears that, like, music listening or some sort of interaction with music happens in this interstitial space for black girls. So my question is, is there an act of, is the act of retreating into this private space result of the magic 
not being a reality for black girls? I mean, I just don't think black girl magic is real. And I mean, that like, I feel like they're two separate things for me. Black girl magic is another thing that I want to try and dismantle because it sets up the expectation of exceptionality in black women. Um, that there is this way in which we can be paid attention to, but it has to be attached to the superlative. Mm. Um, so I detach any kind of relationship between that and magic because the poem is really invested in the idea that you should just be able to be an average everyday person. Um, and, you, you know, there shouldn't be any magic that you have to conjure in order for, um, you know, you know, once again, saying love, you know, but of that kind of very human source of appreciation to happen for you. Um, but very much so that part of the poem is about the interstitial space. And I do think, although I am, you know, I'm very passionate about not using the word magic, I think that it's such a special connection between black girls and the number of us who may have never met each other together, but you put on the same Missy Elliott song for all of us and we have the exact same reaction. Like it just, you know, it just goes through our bodies <laughs> in the exact same way. And when I think about that moment, I think so much of that starts in the personal, you know, you taking the time to listen to that music yourself. And it doesn't have to be music. I think um, so much of being a black girl is cultivating a very private, um, a private comfort. Um, and music is a place that a lot of us derive intimacy from in our private moments. So I think it's a reason why music shows up as part of that conversation. And I liked the idea of a stack full of burned CDs because there's a pain in that, you know, that there's this expectation of this solitude as something that we have to grapple with and to find, um, I think of it instead of magic, I think more as we have to find a fantasy that fits us within that space to tell ourselves that we're worthy and that we are appreciated. Yeah. Um, and we do it. And I think yeah. that, you know, that it's pretty incredible that we actually do it in a way that makes us really, really special and glorious. Um, and yeah, so I, I did want to end the poem with a recognition of the fact that the interstitial is a, a painful place, but it's also a restorative right. um, and um, a place where we kind of reclaim who we are. Yeah, that even reminds me of what you were just sharing um, about you and sh the other oh, Shayla yeah. and how <laughs> that just going into that movie room you were talking about I mean that's an interstitial space or exactly. oh yeah what we yeah and I think what, you're, what I think is so interesting about what you're saying is because we had that little girl reaction to what happened to us, we did exactly the thing that we used to do as little girls. Mm -hmm. We didn't necessarily have somebody else with us, you know? Yeah. We went in our room, we turned down the lights, right. you know, we, you know, we cried, we held yeah. hands, and we put on our headphones, <laughs> you know? We actually just watched this same clip from Scandal over and over again. <laughs> it's the one where the mom gives the monologue about, like, us being swagger jacked, right. and all, yeah. like, we we just watched that on repeat on YouTube just wow over and over you know so yeah, yeah we did like we we 
found our own little interstitial cocoon mm-hmm. and created that in you know in the midst of you know in that yeah. they, because we know that that is a space that we've created inside of ourselves mm-hmm. it's a place of great healing and comfort so yeah that's so beautiful <laughs> um so talking about your forthcoming collection yes this is major notes on diana ross dark girls and being dope that is to release in june i believe yeah it'll be out in a couple of months yeah and it's available for pre-order too right it's available for yes. pre-order right now so we're get it. You know, <laughs> sending out galleys to press and that's exciting <laughs> seeing what people have to say about it I was reading about um, this on HarperCollins' website, and I'm really interested in the questions you're raising here um, in the collection of essays. Like, one of them that really stood out to me was why Black women are seemingly invisible to AI. <laughs> oh, it's not seemingly. It's, that's, that's literal. <laughs> it's, it's real. No, that, um, the, so uh, in the book I talk specifically about... Um, a computer program by the name of Joy Bulumwimi, and uh, she has created an organization that fights algorithmic bias. So what has happened is, one of the ways that we like to think about computers is that we like to think of them as the most unbiased and um, better versions of ourselves. Um, but the way that computers work is that computers learn from us. Le- machine learning means, you know, we teach machines. Right. And we have taught machines not to see dark-skinned women. Mm. That goes beyond the idea of not seeing black women um, because black skin works on a spectrum. So when we say that, it, you know, it's not that AI doesn't see black women. It doesn't see women with dark skin, mm. um, which means you can come from, you know, a whole host of cultures in which, you know, you affect. So that's a huge percentage of the world that AI cannot read. Um, And metaphorically, it's really interesting because it represents the women that throughout multiple cultures we tend to ignore, which is why instead of focusing on the idea of black girl identity in the subhead to the book, I looked at the idea of dark girls because there's something very specific to the nature of being dark skinned um, or darker in any particular version of a conversation, whether you come from a Latinx community, whether you come from an Asian community, Mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly if you come from a Southeast Asian community, um, because of the spectrum that they share in terms of skin color that we do, um, you are going to be affected by the fact that AI does not see dark skinned Mm -hmm. people. Um, And although for me, when it comes to the book at large, a lot of the experiences that I talk about are from the perspective of being a black woman. That's, you know, particularly because I grew up a black woman and not because I am of the mind that these experiences are limited to us. Um, I'm not necessarily the person who does the thing where it's like all all people, all women are having the same experience. I try to, to I try to cater a conversation in which we look specifically at the idea of darkness and the ways that darkness as an identity is something that we kind of need to re-examine. I think about when Audre Lorde wrote, oh, sorry, excuse me, when Audre Lorde w- wrote A Burst of Light, she was trying to do that with blackness. She was mm-hmm. trying to get more people across the world to look at their identity and their marginalization in terms of being a part of blackness. Um, and 
I decided to extend that conversation by looking at the term dark and the ways that we can start to look at that as a manifestation of the ways that xenophobia and misogyny and um, heteronormativity and colorism all start to play into the ways that people are marginalized. Last question. Is there a poem you would like to read? Um, Since you like to, I'll read Nights. Really? Yeah, yeah. let's do that. <laughs> I write a lot in my book, but uh, in my books in general. <laughs> oh, no, this is still really clean. My book is all marked up. <laughs> I'm glad to know I'm not the only oh, one. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> Nights. For Shayla Seabree. Nights like this, we name all the bros, like Bapo, Fluff, and Reggie Watts, Prez, the Impossible Negro, Big Booty Clarence, whose nickname was just Clarence, or Paco, no relation. We felt like summer was gonna last forever. Dozens of orange roses direct to our doorstep and freshly cut fades combing by Vespas to help us load groceries or hand-painted sketches of our high school yearbook photo. And if our moms ever asked, we don't know how that boy happened to get our block ride chaos home telephone number. Like we weren't up in our room singing bootleg love letters and cherry coke lip balm and the slow grind of our tears nights like this, spin bees and honeysuckle, all soft buzz and earthy odes to every less fresh prince. Like last summer, when we dozed next to Lonnie on the sofa of our late flick turned makeshift sleepover, like everything we imagined, deciding not to kiss closer as the screen glow etched a memory of his face. We knew we'd be next. A chance to finally hold his knuckle in the stark of days where the boys all had nicknames for us like females, and nah, girl, and who, and don't be, you such a, and alone. Pretty Tina passing by by morning on Lonnie's spoke, strands laughing like a string quartet as his allegiance bleaches to all our midnight notes. That was all it took for us to let go the dream entirely, for the fantasy to burn and well our eyes like a dozen discarded petals. Some days, the only way being a black girl feels magic is that it isn't real. Like we're always stuck in the meat cute of someone else's musical. Like we're best supporting actress. But who are we kidding? This isn't our first time around the disco cul-de-sac fire department. We watch them ride off and the sun set and retreat back to the night of day, blinds closed, heads covered, headphones. A stack full of burned CDs. Thank you so much, Shayla, for You're joining welcome. us. It was a great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed, and we look forward to reading This Is Major. Ah, I can't wait for it to come out. I can't wait for you to read it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Limestone Review Podcast. Formerly, I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Special thanks to the University of Kentucky's Department of English, our MFA faculty, the Visiting Writers Series, and to each of our contributors. New Limestone Review publishes monthly online issues and one yearly print issue. You can find more information about submitting and our guidelines on our website at newlimestonereview.as.edu.
www.uky.edu.